Hi, I'm Aoife Guy. In this episode of Modern Law, we discuss the revitalization of Indigenous law in Canada. You're listening to Modern Law, presented by the Canadian Bar Association's National Magazine. I'm really thrilled about introducing my next guest, the charming storyteller and legal scholar Tuma Young. Now, if anything, this show is about the law's ability to keep pace with change. And this conversation is an attempt to better understand what it means to revitalize Indigenous law as a source of law in the Canadian legal framework on par with common and civil legal traditions. And it's also about how we should be thinking of that conceptually. Because the last decade has been a fascinating time in this area, particularly in the wake of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's calls to action to promote Indigenous law, which the Government of Canada has committed to do. And there have been some big steps taken in that direction, with the implementation, first in BC, and then at the federal level in 2021, of the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. These developments are just the latest chapters in a larger effort to reconcile Aboriginal and Crown constitutional and legal orders. Now, a bit about my guest. Tuma Young is a King's Counsel. He grew up in the traditions of the Eskasoni First Nation. He's a researcher and an assistant professor in Indigenous Studies and Political Science at Cape Breton University. He also served as the Nova Scotia Barrister Society's first Indigenous president in 2021-2022. And his primary research area is the analysis of Ulnu worldview. Ulnu is the term the Mi'kmaq use to describe themselves. And so he focuses on traditional concepts of governance and how they can be used in contemporary legal institutions. And I also kind of like to think of him as an archaeologist of sorts of indigenous legal traditions. Tuma Young, welcome to the show. Oh, Willan and Eves, thank you very much for having me on the show. How, how do you come into this conversation, Tuma Young, uh, and how did, you, how did you get interested in this issue of bringing back indigenous legal traditions into our contemporary law? Well, I guess you can go back to uh, my law school days in a way. Uh, when I was in law school, I, one of the reasons I selected uh, the law school that I went to was because they had a lot of Aboriginal law um, courses, and I was very much interested. My passion is there because that's who I am as an Indigenous person, right? And so while I was there, I took as many indigenous, Aboriginal law courses that I did, and I thought I was learning about Indigenous law. But it really turned out that I was only learning about Canadian law as it is applied to Indigenous people. It's not until I went down to Arizona and I came back to my own community that I became very aware of that distinction. Um, One of the things that happened is uh, when I was in Arizona, I was a guardian ad litem for a court, a tribal court down there. And I had to do uh, reports on uh, um, uh, children in custody disputes and incapacitated adults. So one of my first things I did, I asked for, they were, when here we are, we're in a tribal court on the reserve. There is a, uh, an Indigenous judge. There's an Indigenous uh, lawyer representing the mother, Indigenous lawyer representing the father. We have Indigenous clerks in the uh, courthouse. It's, there's Indigenous sheriffs, you know in a courthouse, and it's beautiful courthouse on a reserve. And I asked for their indigenous laws regarding child uh, welfare, child custody. And they gave me one, and it looked strangely familiar. And I'm like, you know, what is, what's, what is this? 
And when I went to the state of Arizona, they had replaced the state of Ari- the word state of Arizona in their state of Arizona child welfare code and replaced it with the tribe's name. And I was like, really, there's nothing indigenous about this. They just you know, scratched out the name and put it in here. And that got me thinking about, you know, when we're looking at replicating institutions of governance or in law or in our communities, often we end up replicating the very same institutions that all these in, uh, reports and inquiries and commissions have all talked about. And they basically said that they don't work. In other words, we're really putting brown people in, in a Western institution, you know, and not using our laws. And then when I came back home, I was at a, a powwow in my own home community here. And I was talking, we're the last of the Gojuwadats. There's not many of us left, you know. We are trying to teach people about the traditional Gojuwadats. But if you go to a powwow in many of our communities here, they're very pan-Indigenous. They look very much like, you know, if you were in Alberta, Saskatchewan, or Ontario, you know, after similar dances, similar chants, similar drums, similar arbors, etc. Um, what makes all those difference is that we have a different style of traditional dancing. Anyways, my cousin wanted to dance at the powwow. And I told her that I think you have to offer some tobacco to the drummers. I said, that's, I think that's the protocol. I said, I wasn't sure, but she, I said, so she took some tobacco and she went to the drummers and she offered them tobacco and asked them to sing the Gojuwa dance or, or Gojuwa chant. And she came back and she was very puzzled and she was a little bit, uh, a little off. And I said, what happened? She said, well, I gave them the tobacco, like you said. I asked them to drink the gojua, but they gave me back the tobacco. And I said, well, what did they say? And she said that I could not dance around the drum because I wasn't wearing a skirt. And that, you know, women have to wear skirts when they're dancing around the drum. And I'm like, says who? Well, that's what they said. And so I went over to the drummers and I asked them, I said, what's this I hear? And they said, yes, that's our law. And I'm like, I've never heard of this law. And they said, where did it come from? And they said, our elders. I said, which one? And they couldn't tell me. They all looked at each other. They had heard it somewhere, somewhere down the line, somewhere. And I'm like, so you guys just pulled this out of thin air. You know? I said, did you know that Mi'kmaq people, all new people, where, where would woodlands people we're not planes you know people you know we're not on the planes if you're on a plane the skirt might be very practical but here in the woods when they catch on the twigs everything Mi'kmaq women traditional regalia would be wearing a smock over leggings you know and skirts are very impractical in the woods and in the swamps here that's where we're at but that got me thinking where are people pulling indigenous law? We often have said we have indigenous law, but what is it? Where is it located, etc.? So that got me thinking about it, and I had to go back and I did some graduate studies in in legal theory. And so all the all the uh, advisors, my advisors and professors, were you know recommending me to look at this legal theory, this legal theory, legal theory, and see if that's a place where I can locate and put in indigenous legal orders. And I'm like, hmm. And every single one of them I thought about, well, they were a good fit. I had to study natural law, economics and the law, feminism and the law, and uh, legal pluralism, and many other, a few other uh, legal theories. And none of them seemed to fit, you know, because, 
And legal pluralism came close, but the history of legal pluralism is that it's rooted in colonization. When you know when Western law was applied to a colonial country, like for example, some, some places in Africa, and they couldn't get rid of some of the indigenous legal orders, so they allowed them to exist. But the dominant uh, Western laws were the dominant one, and if they come into conflict, of course, the Western law would. But the local laws were allowed, or that the, the ruling governor, governors would just ignore them, and thus the existence of legal pluralism, where two or more law legal systems come into place. It's interesting because obviously, uh, you know, legal pluralism in Canada has maybe different meanings, and and it's interesting that you raise this colonial connection to it because I think sometimes we think in Canada of legal pluralism as coming to us as something, you know, it, it comes to us pretty naturally given the coexistence of common law with the role of Quebec civil law and its sort of unique place in, in confederation. So, so what is legal pluralism and, and is there a relationship between legal pluralism and reconciliation or are you telling us that this is just not the right term that we should be using? I, I think it really is not the right term because when we understand legal pluralism, even in the clean context of the, the common law and the Quebec civil code, we're still assuming that it's a hierarchy of laws and that indigenous legal orders would be on the bottom of it. Whereas, we, you know, the intent is to have indigenous legal orders side by side. And even in those situations where there's an intersectionality, you can create a space there where a hybrid indigenous legal order can exist. You know, whereas, uh, for example, if you were to take the common law and in those situations where indigenous legal orders will you know, intersect there, you create a space where both legal systems are in place, but neither dominates. And to me, that would be the best type of legal pluralism, if you want to call it that, and give full meaning to the concept of legal pluralism. But often what happens is when we're thinking about legal pluralism and the theory of it is that we have two or more laws. One of them will always be the dominant one, uh, you know, over indigenous legal orders. And that's not the type of legal pluralism that's really what is called for in all of these inquiries and, uh, and in the TRC and reconciliation. And to give you a good example, Canada has always had a, a third order of constitutional legal orders, and that's been indigenous right from the get-go. For example, the Canadian Constitution is made out of, you know, uh, conventions and treaties, etc. But one of the treaties that UNOs have adopted but may not be considered as a treaty from the Canadian side is the Royal Proclamation. The Royal Proclamation is a proclamation from the King or from the Crown, you know, back in 1763. But shortly after it was proclaimed, and even here in Nova Scotia before that, you know, we had uh, Belcher's Proclamation, which is the forerunner for the Royal Proclamation. Afterwards, the Royal Proclamation was brought to the great gathering in Niagara, where over 200 tribes gathered, and they listened to the Royal Proclamation as was presented, including the Mi'kmaq or the Unu tribe, and we accepted it as a treaty. So from all indigenous nations in Canada and the United States, the Royal Proclamation is actually a treaty. It's not just a proclamation from the Crown. But the Royal Proclamation is part of the Canadian constitutional order. Treaties, the Peace and Friendship Treaties, Robinson-Hudson uh, Treaties, Huron Treaties are part of the Canadian Constitutional Order. The number of treaties out west are 
part of the Canadian constitutional order. So do we look to these indigenous legal instruments as part of our Canadian constitution? Of course we do. But when we put it into our laws, we seem to forget that these indigenous legal orders constitute a third head of authority. So when we're looking at, for example, in the past, uh, criminal or family law issues or disputes to be uh, adjudicated in the courts, John Boris has written about how indigenous laws have been adopted and accepted into the Canadian legal order as a third order, third source. And one of the most famous cases is the, uh, the Windigo case that he had out in northern Ontario. And then the other one, which was a very interesting one, the, the Woodworth case coming out of uh, the state of Quebec and uh, British Columbia and Ontario. Both cases, indigenous laws regarding the punishment for murder in the Windigo case and the, what constitutes a marriage in the Anishinaabe Cree hinterland uh, during the Hudson's Bay Company. And, and how does this square off with the Quebec Civil Code where the family was at odds with the, the marriage of the, the, the voyagers there in the what they used to call country marriages. They weren't considered legal, but from the indigenous legal order, they were very much legal. So Canada, from time to time, has looked towards indigenous laws as a way to adjudicate disputes, whether it was in the criminal context or in the civil context. Now, again, they don't come up often, but there were some more recent cases out of British Columbia, the ICBC case, and I forget the name of that, but there was a, a, a death in the family, the grandchild who was traditionally raised by the grandparents, and they were given insurance compensation payout because they said that in, under Indigenous law, they were the, the, the natural parents, even though they were the grandparents. There was no traditional, it was a traditional adoption. Similar situations are coming out of the Northwest Territories in Iqaluit. So the Canadian court system has brought in Indigenous law when it was perfectly acceptable to do so. So what, that's my idea of legal pluralism, is that we need to bring more and more of Indigenous legal orders and laws to the, the adjudicators or the decision makers in the court systems so that they have a third source of legal orders in which to try and resolve disputes. So let me just try and unpack that a little bit because for I guess for lack of a better term, and I you know, and, and so I'm I'm I hesitate now to use this term of legal pluralism given all the the reasons and the colonial history behind it. But I suppose in the context of revitalizing indigenous legal traditions, how do we think about this? Are we talking about separate legal systems? Are we talking about bringing traditions together? How do we weave all these different legal traditions, and there are many different indigenous legal traditions, into the fabric of our larger corpus of law, so to speak? Well, that's exactly the term that's really uh, relevant and it's been coming up over and over again in the work that we're doing. It's instead of using weave, you can use braid. You know, you braid and uh, you braid it into uh, the system of, you know, the laws and the systems that we have already. So you take one braid, which is, uh, you know, probably international legal systems, 
and then two, you would know the Canadian legal systems, and three, indigenous legal orders, and you break them. And by breaking them, you're making a very strong rope or very strong braid in which all three orders are strengthened by each other, you know, rather than each of them standing alone. And in those areas, in those spaces where you don't really know which is the one, you can use both or all three and come up with a space. It's like thinking about it as a middle ground approach. For example, when the settlers first started to arrive, when the French arrived here in our communities, and in the English, in a way, um, there was a space there where French law did not apply to some disputes. It applied within their own context, within their own communities, within their own disputes. But, and also, UNO law would apply in their own communities, in their own context, and in their own disputes. But disputes between the two, or regulating trade, or anyway, you come to a kind of a middle ground where both agree to use some of their legal traditions and come up with a perhaps a temporary one or perhaps a, a, a bit more longer lasting. But they're in this middle ground, both brought their legal systems or parts of their legal systems and created a hybrid one that worked in their, in, in their relationships, neither dominated. And if you look at the treaties, especially the peace and friendship treaties out here in the East here, basically people seem to think that we promise not to kill each other. The Unruh promise not to kill the, uh, the English and the English promise not to kill us and all the wars and disputes will be settled, etc. However, those treaties are just as much trade and economic treaties because both parties wanted a relationship with each other to continue. And it is this relationship that you require uh, dispute resolution mechanisms. So they would bring in their own parts of their indigenous legal orders and also the Western legal orders or the English legal orders and use these as a hybrid approach to resolve their disputes. So, so, so again, you know, and I, you know, being someone who um, learned law and went to, attended law school in a civil civil law jurisdiction in Quebec, I suppose the, the analogy I can make is to the hybridization of law, of civil law in Quebec. And, you know, I mean, there are proud defenders of uh, the, the, the civil legal tradition here, but there has been some hybridization between civil and common law. And we've even seen common law legal tradition here import civil law concepts. Those, however, are I mean, we're talking about two legal traditions that are rooted in European law and perhaps have more similarities than differences, certainly when compared to Indigenous legal traditions, and perhaps I'm wrong about that. But how feasible is this in concrete terms? I think you're going to find that a lot of Indigenous legal principles are more aligned with the civil code than they are with the common law. Interesting. Why? How so? Because they tend to rely on principles, you know, to resolve disputes or use these principles to uh, to see what could happen, you know. And part of the part of the interpretation is to bring these principles into the dispute arena. You know, you'll often hear from many Indigenous communities that their courts they want them to utilize the the seven grandfather teachings, 
these are the overwhelming, overarching legal orders, the, the seven principles of the grandfather, love, respect, honesty, truth, etc. type of thing. So these are the principles, and you have to constantly keep these in mind. So when you look at a dispute, you interpret the dispute or you analyze the dispute using these principles in mind. And if I'm not mistaken, that's similar to what the, you know, I know, I know I'm you know, kind of, you know, bringing it down to a small bit, but in some ways that's my understanding of the Quebec Civil Code is that you have these principles and they're used to, you know, interpret uh, how things are to be done. Would you say it's a more deductive method of reasoning, like uh, like civil civil law or? Yes, I think so. And it would be much more, and also it re- results in much more conversational or a di- a dialectic uh, uh, approach to resolving a dispute. And that leads to much more uh, consensus building than it is to arbitrarily you know, apply something there. You know, so that if, uh, if an agreement is made, it is reached through a consensus or a, di- a dialogue, and the parties and everyone involved has a much more invested interest in, in agreeing and abiding by this agreement. Know, rather than have something uh, imposed from the outside. Um, having having said that, though, we do. I mean, and correct me if I'm wrong, but indigenous and non-indigenous legal orders have different conceptions of governance, do they not? Well, yes, they do. But there is uh, on the larger scale, there is always a leadership, um, and who's responsible for enacting, or um, who's responsible for what obligations. You know, and many of the, these obligations and responsibilities are, you know, very much the same. You have natural resources, uh, you know, Limp, uh, reviewing um, uh, property, assigning uh, areas, hunting, etc., type of thing. So many of the same responsibilities of government, those same powers and authorities have been wielded by indigenous leaders for many, many years. And they've been used. One of the fundamental differences, though, is it has been identified by Indigenous academics is that the source of the law, in particular, whether it's private law or public law, is, is seen as opposite of what Canada or the Western society is. In Canada, public law is the law of the state. Like, like, to give an example, the Canadian Criminal Code, you know, that's the law of the state. Whereas private law is, you know, disputes between two individuals privately, lawsuits or the, you know, the civil, the common code with you no know, civil law. So that's how you would resolve your disputes. You know, the government doesn't tend to interfere with it except for whatever legislation instruments they have. But you're basically suing each other. You know. In in the Elno community, it's kind of reversed. Public law rests with the family and private law rest with the governance institutions. And I'm going to use the, the criminal um, behaviors. It, it, you know, and there is a shared liability and a shared um, uh, conviction here with family members. So in the family, the criminal modification behaviors are uh, the responsibilities for that rest with the family, in particular the immediate family. So a family, if some one of their members does wrong, the whole family is seen doing wrong. And so it is in the interest of the family to make sure that their members uh, stay on the right track 
and they will correct any behavior if they see anybody veering off a little bit. And there are various mechanisms in which the family does uh, uses to uh, deal with these things. Whereas in the public sphere, we use basically a an, um, you know force or violence to to ensure compliance or to take away somebody's freedom in a way. That's the ultimate force that's used, right? And that's, it, I'm not saying judgment on either one, whichever is better or not. They're just different, you know. For example, uh, because Canada can be seen as a federation of different communities and immigrant communities, regardless whether they're English or French or or from the, you know, recent immigrants or anything, or settling, it's it seems to be an unnatural community. These people are not, you know, type of thing. So they need external forces to modify their behaviors or keep their behaviors and, and create a, a regulatory scheme. Whereas if it's in a natural community, like a small band of unknowns, uh, and you have the family that will keep the rules, they will keep the regulations, and it's in their interest to, ma- to ensure that their members follow the set of standards that they've enacted, like under morality or whatever it can be, right? So it's a natural community versus, you know, and as opposed to an unnatural community in a way, right? What would this mean? Because that's an interesting, and that's not a non, that's a non-negligible difference between indigenous legal traditions and, and the ones of common law or even civil law. So how do we, how must we think or rethink the application of, I guess, public law or state law? Well, that's the most difficult work. (laughs) And I often tell people, um, you also have to understand the impact of colonization upon indigenous communities. You know, if you look back, there's, uh, there's a lot that has happened. You know, and some recent things, you know, the TRC identified Indian residential schools, their Indian day schools, you have the 60 scoops. The current issue is the, you know, the, the children's aid societies. But even before that, there were legislative uh, impacts, you know, like not being able to hire lawyers, the removal of status from uh, many different folks, even uh, confederation took away the power. And even before that, the impacts, the, one of the biggest impacts was the, the virgin disease epidemics, you know, the arrival of uh, many diseases on our shores. So all of these have gone on and it's been one after another. So you can't get away from not looking at these impacts of colonialism. And often I tell people, here's a good example. In 1610, Grand Chief Member 2 was baptized here in Nova Scotia at Port Royal, and with the French community there. So in that baptism, he was reported to be 110 years old. And his one of his quotes was that when he was a young child, he had met uh, Jacques Cartier or Jean Chabat. I'm not exactly sure which one, but maybe both. And in his travels, and that uh, during that time, there was more illness than the hair on his head. We're taking about the French first arrived in Nova Scotia or Nouvelle Ecosse um, around 1497, let's say 1500 for easy sake, right? And so between 1500 and 1610, that's about a period of 110 years, and already Grand Chief Member 2 had saw, saw a decline in the numbers of 
indigenous people here in Atlantic Canada. Between 1610 and the start of the treaty-making process with the British was about 1693, 1725, it depends which treaties you consider, etc. type of thing. The estimates was that there was about 30 to 50,000 Ulnos here in, in Atlantic Canada. Still a very strong military force to be reckoned with, but not the estimate that was in around 1400, about 300 to 500,000 Ulnos. So in the 200 years, there's been a substantial decrease. And by the time the treaty-making period was ended by 1800 and the treaty denial period came into place, which is the 1800s until Confederation and even beyond, you know, estimates in 1850 here in Nova Scotia was there was only 2,500 indigenous people left there, almost left there. We were almost wiped out. So I tell people in our search for indigenous laws and indigenous legal orders, indigenous knowledge, I feel that we're like those archaeologists that go around digging up pottery shards and we find a couple pieces of pottery and we're able to assemble it and then fill in the rest to show what the pot could have looked like or did look like. No, we'll never find all the pieces because between 1850 and let's say up to 2000, or, you know, until the 1985 or 2000, the focus was on surviving and just surviving and not becoming extinct. So a lot of indigenous knowledge, um, indigenous law, indigenous legal orders has been lost to time. And we are trying to piece, we're just finding shards and I'm imagining what that pot looked like. I'm imagining what indigenous legal orders looks like based on what I'm able to find. And I'm finding a lot of shards, a lot of examples, and I'm finding them in those locations where I eventually had to look. I know I couldn't find them in, you know, documents like uh, the Arizona State Code or... So where, where do you find them? I find them in the language, songs, ceremonies, rituals, chants, dances, the world view of a new people. And that's where I find them. And this sounds completely naive as a question, but like how, how much of it do you think you can piece together? Or, and I guess another way of putting it is that, is there a job ahead that is filling in the blanks? Oh, God, six, yes. There'll be lots of jobs ahead for that. Here's an example of how I've been able to do it. I... Grew up with my cousin, oh, God love him, Joey. Joey, he's now passed away. He used to sing songs to us on his guitar and bring out his guitar at Maniguage at the campfire and sing a few songs. And he would be singing this song, you know, and uh, so I always thought of him as like when Joey had a few beers in him, he would sing these songs, right? You know, kind of a fun thing. It's not until I started doing research and I went into the, um, the archives here and I pulled out the, um, Captain Ben Christmas, who was a member to uh, chief in the 1950s, 1940s, 1950s, and even earlier. Um, he was recorded on wax cylinders in the Nova Scotia archives and he sang a song called The Marriage Song. And people said, oh yeah, well look at this, we have a marriage song. And when I listened to it as a fluent 
unknown speaker and I can understand him in this. And I understood and I said, well, that's the marriage song. And then part of it was the marriage divorce song. Under the Canadian Constitution, the authority to solemnize a marriage is with the provinces under Section 92. The authority to dissolve a marriage is under with the federal government. But unknown people, we had that authority to do both. And so it was contained in this song, what the rituals are, what people had to do in order to have a marriage be recognized by the community and in order to have a divorce recognized by the community and become legal. So all new people can have that authority and it was in one song and that's how it was passed on. And But it's not just a song, it's in combination with a feast, both sides, and also in selection, consent, and every all the other rituals that are required and steps. You know, like you still require these steps in the solemnization of a marriage, anyways, and you still require steps in order to get to the divorce, right? So they're just different types of steps. Same thing with this one. So now I'm a justice of the peace here in Nova Scotia. I do weddings, and so when I do weddings in the communities. And what I do is that uh, the Solemnization of Marriage Act in Nova Scotia requires, you know, there's certain phrases to be said, promises to be made, oaths to be taken, etc. type of thing, right? Um, And at the end, I, as the officiant, say, by the authority vested in me by the Marriage Act in Nova Scotia, I now pronounce you spouses. Well, sometimes I don't say that. Sometimes I say, by the authority vested in me under Unuweg Debludakan, Mi'kmaq laws, I now pronounce you spouses. Or I'll say, in the, it depends on the context. I'll say, in the, by the authority vested in me under Debludan and under the Marriage Act of Nova Scotia, I now pronounce you spouses. And that's a way for me to bring and braid those, the Canadian law with Debludan, which is Indigenous Legal Orders, and to accomplish the same thing. So I find that fascinating. And, and, and precisely on that, topic of braiding you know i mean so i I think when we have these discussions about reviving revitalizing indigenous legal traditions or if you want to have discussions about again a term that applies maybe poorly here but legal pluralism there are questions about you know who's included in the indigenous legal order who the indigenous law applies to um so uh, perhaps of the cases that you're describing, you know, you, you can decide when to use what, but I, there got to be there got to be areas where it's more complex than that. And I'm just wondering if you could sort of give me your impressions on that. Oh yes, there are many many areas that uh, there's going to be some you know complexities and difficulties, and uh, we just have to walk through them and stumble through. It's like you know, when we're when we're in those spaces, that's the creation of a new shard that's going to be added to the pot. And one of the more difficult ones is that some of these indigenous legal orders and principles, people will say, "Well, they're over a thousand years ago. How can it apply today in society?" Etc. Type of thing. You know. So that's one of the challenges. How do you bring these indigenous legal orders, these other ones, and bring them into a contemporary setting? Like I can talk about how I do the solemnization of the marriage, etc. 
you know, and even the divorce in this way, but how do I deal with child support, division of assets, you know, what about homes on matrimonial property on reserves, etc. All of these are contemporary issues that needs to be resolved. And people say, well, these are old, very old laws that not going to be able to do it. Well, you know what? Laws are very fluid. They're flexible. They change. You know, Canada revises its statutes every couple of years, every 10 years. It's, it is very much possible. And, you know, part of the whole application of law to our communities is that it has to be contemporary. There's no way around it. Right. And, and that's really what builds the strength in the braid is when when communities and folks see themselves and you know, are reflected in the laws and they accept them, then the laws become much stronger in their applications. You know, and they're accepted. It's when they're not accepted that a possible institution can crumble away. You know, and that's that's one of the worrisome thoughts that I think about currently um, in our court systems. Um, many people, many new people, many indigenous people don't see themselves reflected there, not in who is sitting there, who is participating there, but who is directly impacted by it. So you see, you know, overrepresentation, you know, um, and the judges and the courts are, they don't seem to be able to respond adequately. And so there's a, there's a large mistrust between indigenous communities and the justice system. And when you have a whole um, section of the, um, of the community or of a country or Canada not having any trust in a, in a governance institution, that is very, very worrisome. You know? And that's part of our job to see what we need to do to reconcile and bring folks back into a new relationship with the, the indigenous legal orders and with the Canadian legal orders and with you know the other international legal orders. And that's where, when we're looking at reconciliation, we need to break them all. So that when a no-no person from Wamukuku First Nation is appearing in front of a judge in court, that they can see their laws reflected or being used by the judge regardless if the judge is indigenous or not, and see it applied and accept it. You know? And that's part of uh, the, the foundational roles of our society, I think. You know, these are the institutions of governance that, that rely on our community's acceptance. So there is an imperative to revitalize indigenous laws that, that predate confederation and that were ignored for too long. At the same time, there are, you know, we live in 2022 at a time when, you know, we do live in a pretty complex legal society where, you know, we are trying to braid also international laws, you, as you explained earlier, and national law and then provincial law and then different indigenous legal orders. Is there a worry that we create patchworks and layers that make it too difficult for citizenry in general to 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 grasp at a time where you know we're trying to improve access to justice and all these things and i understand that there's an access to justice imperative in in ensuring that people 
recognize themselves in the legal system, but you know, where are the challenges there? Well, the patchwork is already there. And if you just look toward the south for our neighbors and we can say, well, we don't want to make the same mistakes they did in, in, you know, in looking at tribal sovereignty and jurisdictional issues. For example, if you go, if a crime is committed on a part of, an, uh, like, say, the Cherokee Reserve in Oklahoma, the first question is always asked is that who has jurisdiction here? Not who do we call the police or the ambulance. No, the first question is, do the tribal laws have jurisdiction? Do the state laws have a jurisdiction? Do the federal laws have jurisdiction? And even within a reserve, you can you know, go from uh, one mile to another jurisdiction in the next mile in the same community. You know, so there is a patchwork of systems there which does not really work in a way. And in Canada, we are also having a patchwork of systems here. Sometimes it's the Canadian federal jurisdiction, sometimes it's the provincial jurisdiction, and sometimes there's just uh, Indigenous communities exercising their own inherent jurisdiction and over a particular dispute uh, resolution process without any formalities. And so when you have that kind of systems, it, it, it does lead to a patchwork. For example, you know, there was a mention of previously, people will ask, well, you can't have two systems of justice. Well, we already do. We have multiple systems of justice. You know, just the, the example of the Canadian common law, the Quebec Civil Code is just like, you know, they, people can say, well, that's two systems, right? But even still, we have, you know, the criminal system, the civil system, and then we also have an administrative system, an adjudicative tribunals. These have their own rules, laws, or regulations, etc. that you know, that I would suspect govern and impact upon most Canadians' lives in a much more different way, in a much more larger way than the, the, you know, the Supreme Court of Canada in a way, right? I'm thinking about the immigration, the Refugee and Immigration Board, the tribunals, the, the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal, or the, the various provincial human rights tribunals. Even universities, you know, have their own little administrative tribunals for student misbehavior, misconduct, Right? And a lot of them struggle with this patchwork of systems. Now, when we don't have, or there's a, uh, there's a space there that's not covered, then the possibility of you know, abuse may come up in place. For example, many uh, housing and uh, rental tenancies we often hear about the, the tenancy boards in Ontario, you know, they're struggling, etc., and the delay in uh, bringing forth uh, disputes before the tenancy boards, and etc. type of thing has an impact on both landlords and both on tenants. The same situation seemed housing is a major issue all across Canada. On reserves in First Nations communities, provincial tenancy boards do not apply because of the Indian Act. You know, I believe it's section 88, I think, you know, that says that uh, provincial laws of a general application will apply except for the extent that they touch upon the Indian or Indianness of a thing. Well, when we're talking about a uh, landlord-tenant relationship, it's based on land, it's based on reserve level. I, you can't get more indigenous than that or all know. So provincial laws to protect both landlord and tenants do not necessarily apply in First Nations communities. But there is no federal equivalent law. So there's a legislative vacuum here. And so 
you have the potential for abuse to happen. Nobody's rights are protected here. Disputes aren't mediated properly, you know, and that leads to a, a patchwork of solutions, you know, across First Nations communities, like what may work in the Nishka up in British Columbia may be entirely different than what's here, you know, in Nova Scotia, but still the legislative vacuum is there. And then when you have that legislative vacuum, Indigenous people will bring their own laws into it and say, this is how we're going to resolve this dispute. Now, that pattern is repeated in many different arenas. For example, the current one is the, the cannabis regime and cigarettes, you know, cigarette distribution, sale, etc. type of thing, right? And these are where there's a provincial law application, but in a federal jurisdiction, you got a patchwork and you got problems. And so this is where we can probably braid indigenous legal orders to uh, have jurisdiction in these areas. To fill, to fill the void. So, so, so the, patchwork, the patchwork is more of an argument in this case, as, you, as you're putting it, more in favor of braiding in indigenous legal traditions yes. to fill the void. And that will cause indigenous communities to take responsibilities and manage their own communities. And is there an issue with different legal systems applying to different different groups in a polity? Well, it, that was often the, the lesson learned from our neighbors to the south when they were dealing with indigenous communities and the application of who, you know, who gets charged or what happens in the expedition civil dispute. The Navajo have a you know two different pros. They have the Navajo Court, which is established by the the the, uh, the Commerce Clause by the United States government, and it operates just like any other court in a way, right? But the Navajo also have peacemaking court, and they have you know based on their own indigenous laws and indigenous processes, and it, you know it causes peacemaking. So when they first enacted it or started it or reclaimed it back, they. Uh, they found that it was only Navajo people who used it. But over time, they're beginning to see that non-Navajo people and uh, were using it more and more because they were getting a much more fair outcome in their uh, disputes. And now what they're seeing is that it is also can be applicable, and they have used it in uh, uh, disputes with corporations. But you're talking to other people from indigenous communities. No, um, I'm talking about, uh, you know, within the Navajo community, mm -hmm. um, you can have a selection of uh, what dispute mechanism that you can choose. If you're, you know, you can go to the Navajo court system, which is the regular system, or you can choose the Navajo peacemaking. And in some ways, the, the, the Haudenosaunee outside of uh, Montreal, uh, there's a, um, I think it's, it's in uh, Kasachsny, they have a similar one. They have the, uh, the Akasasni court. And uh, when they look at it and they say, well, you know, the Akasasni court, there's a dispute resolution process. This is how we're going to be doing it. And people say, well, you know, it might not be working in this way. And people say, how, well, what way do you want it to work? And there's a lot of flexibility there. But it applies to their own people. It applies to their members. And it applies to people in their jurisdiction. Regardless of whether they're non Haudenosaunee or Haudenosaunee, or even of a different or even their Mi'kmaq, within the boundaries of their community or their jurisdiction, these will apply. 
and they don't necessarily take into account all of the jurisdictional issues. Like some things are just beyond their capacity and we need capacity development in that sense. But they take what they can and they'll, they'll work with it. And they, as slowly as they begin to get more capacity, they'll take on more and more. So it is, um, it, it's, it's, uh, we're going to learn as we go along. And again, it's part of that is that as we go along and we learn new things, we learn that the shape of that pot may not be like a regular pot. There may be other areas or bulges or stuff that work just as well. So I want, I want to get to something else, which is that we have a Supreme Court here, obviously, that has been weighing in on a number of issues, uh, Section 35 legal issues in particular over the course of now of now of a couple of decades, a few decades. I'm wondering how the new law implementing UNDRIP affects this discussion. And I know it's a long-term project, but like how difficult is it going to be to reconcile it with our, our existing case law in in I guess what we call Aboriginal law? It won't be difficult if we all come to it with the proper mindset and the proper heart and intention. And what, what mindset is that? Well, that we are willing to go ahead and embrace it and bring it to fruition and then implement it. And where do you expect, where do you expect the resistance to come from? It will be in the, you know, I don't, you know, people will say, well, I don't understand how this works. I don't want a veto, etc." type of thing on many you know projects or development or anything like this. And there may be confusion as to how UNDRIP will impact upon the federal laws, how it will impact upon the provincial laws, how it will impact upon municipal laws, and also how it will impact upon administrative laws or even in the private sphere, how does it impact upon disputes between entities in universities you know there's a lot of work that's going to have to be done a lot of discussion what does it all mean and not just for the Canadian government or the federal the provincial governments or even the municipal governments or anywhere like you know there's a um, entities that make law but even within our own indigenous governance structures we're going to have to look at this and say UNDRIP is going to have an insignificant impact on us you know um, and how do we look at what may have been an indigenous legal order, for example, the, you know, the role of women or skirts on women in ceremonies, etc. UNDRIP provides uh, equality between uh, the genders. And how do we take that and apply it in a contemporary setting? And that's where the resistance is going to be. Not, I don't think nobody will say that, you know, these laws do not need um, to be brought up to speed or that they need to be uh, brought into a contemporary setting. But it's just the work and how we're going to do it that's going to be you know, a difficult process. And, and, and the Supreme Court, will the Supreme Court have to revise some of its case law? Well, I don't think the Supreme Court does uh, revise any case law, but they'll go back and re- uh, they'll look at uh, an issue if it comes forward. How it comes up, I they haven't done that, you know. They don't do that often, so don't expect them to do that very often. What was the the only thing that the only case that come immediately to mind is the 
the Sue Rodriguez case on assisted uh, dying, and uh, they made a determination in that case previously, and then uh, a decade later, they uh, revisited it again. Or they'll have to evolve their jurisprudence to meet the requirements of UNDRIP. And that's where I think uh, one of the um, my uh, proudest moments was is when I saw uh, Justice um, uh, Obamsawin appointed to the bench there. And it's wonderful to have an Indigenous person at the Supreme Court of Canada, but also it's also wonderful to see that the Supreme Court of Canada is beginning to weave Indigenous law and to look at it as a source in which they can use to resolve disputes and make decisions. That is really what we're really looking for in reconciliation. To change the world, you sometimes need to uh, braid the rules together, I think is the the takeaway from this discussion. The phrase we use in Mi'kmaq is Elisqanawadamuk. I'm sorry, repeat that, please. Elisqanawadamuk. And and that means? We are braiding it. We are braiding it. The phrase that I often use when I speak to my community members is that Elisqanawadamuk, Elnuwadabludan. We are braiding legal orders. Tumayang, I want to thank you for taking the time to speak with us and come on the show and uh, and have this uh, very interesting, fascinating conversation. I think it's it's going to make uh, the evolution of of law in this country uh, quite interesting to follow over the years to come. Yes, and uh, I hope that the folks who are listening to this podcast. I hope I wasn't rambling on or muttering away. I hope I made some sense, but, you know, um, I trust that I did, and uh, I hope that uh, you've everybody enjoys it. I assure you, you did make a lot of sense. It made sense to me, certainly. Thank you to Mayang. Okay, well, Ali. You're listening to Modern Law, presented by the Canadian Bar Association's National Magazine. You can hear this podcast and others on our CBA podcast channel on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us if you can, subscribe to receive notifications for new episodes, and to hear some French, listen to our Droit Moderne podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues. And if you have any comments, feedback, or suggestions of topics that you'd like to hear us discuss here, feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at CBA NatMag and on Facebook. Also, check out our coverage of legal affairs at nationalmagazine.ca. And thank you all for listening to this episode of Modern Law. We'll catch you next time.